Good evening, everybody. I hope you're well. Um, tonight, we're going to do something a little bit different. I mean, it's the same service as always, but just the format is going to be different. Christoph is going to split his sermon into three parts. So effectively, effectively we're going to have three mini-sermons. And how it's going to run is I will read a passage, Christoph will then preach on it, and then we'll sing a song in response. Okay? So, our first reading tonight is uh, from Judges chapter 6. I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 10. It's page 248 in the Pew Bible. It goes like this. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. This is the word of God. Thanks for that, uh, Richie. Folks, we're looking at Judges chapter 6 this evening. And as Richie's already said, we're going to look at it in a few different chunks. But before we dive into this first chunk, just a bit of an idea of what the the overarching uh, theme of the chapter might be for us. I I think there's something here about God's presence. Gideon seems to want assurance of God's presence. We'll see that as we read further in the narrative. Jesus Christ promised his disciples um, at the end of his time with them on earth, Matthew 28, famously, he said, I will be with you always to the end of time. And that's just how it works, isn't it? We always know and experience fully the presence of God, don't we? Just now, every one of us, the Lord's right here with us. Tomorrow, In the week ahead, we're absolutely sure we'll know his presence. I think we probably have a sense, yes, somehow God is with me, but I I often don't know it. Um, I'll be uh, honest enough to say that that's the case for me. I go through long swathes of my life um, where I'm trusting Jesus that he is with me, but I don't maybe have a very tangible sense of that in the moment. 
I, I've reflected on this quite a lot in my life in recent years, and I have this funny relationship with God where oftentimes I'll feel that he's not with me, but he, he does this thing where he comes along and he taps me on the shoulder just to say, oh, I'm here. You hardly know it, but I'm here. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, last week, some of you were with us here for the, the BBC service, and you probably sensed my relief at the end of that service when it was all over. I didn't enjoy that process of preparing for that or getting ready for it or, or even delivering it very much. But the way it ended for us when a service that we had been asked to time for 45 minutes ended at five seconds past 11, I just had a real sense of the Lord saying, that's okay. I was always looking after that. That was always going to be all right. And I was like, okay, okay. Another experience, um, last Sunday, a young man came to our service for the first time, and he came and introduced himself to me, said he'd been at a CU where, where I'd spoken the week before. I'd come home from that CU thinking, goodness, if that's not the worst talk I've ever given at a CU, then, you know. And yet, this young man comes along and says, you know, God's uh, drawn me here to be part of this church family. Just another tap on the shoulder. Christoph, I'm here. It's okay. So this question, is God with us? It's a major concern for Gideon in chapter 6. I think it overarches the whole of the chapter. Just before we get into that, um, I want to recap with you very quickly on how Judges works, the Judges cycle. We haven't done any Judges actually for four weeks. Because we only meet fortnightly, we missed um, our last opportunity for a, a judge's sermon. So if we flick up on the screen, Mark, the, the judge's cycle, I realized that anybody who doesn't have superhero powers of vision can't read my PowerPoint. That's right, isn't it? I better tell you, I, I always give Richie a hard time if he puts stuff up on the PowerPoint that you can't read. And then I saw this one from the back when Mark popped it up. Let me, let me tell you what it says, okay? This is what happens over and over again in the book of Judges. First thing that happens is God's people rebel. That's the first blob, by the way. Second blob, God is angry. Third blob, there's oppression by enemies. Some enemy comes and uh, oppresses God's people. The fourth thing that happens is that the people cry out uh, to God. Uh, we might call that repentance. Fifth thing that happens, salvation comes through a chosen judge. Then there's a time of peace, and that's, that's all great. But then the judge dies, and the people rebel. So you just go round and round this cycle. We've, we've been round this cycle four times. I'm not expecting you to, to maybe appreciate that. Richie dealt with three cycles, uh, some of them very short in his first sermon dealing with actual judges, so Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar in chapter 3, and then the fourth judge in the fourth cycle was Deborah in chapter 4. So we're going to look at another judges cycle this evening, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, how many, if, if this is already the fifth cycle and this book is going to go on and on, here we go again. If you, if you have opened the passage before you this evening, the, the opening verse of chapter 6 is its classic uh, opening 
of the judges cycle sort of territory. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The people are doing what they do. They're rebelling. And we're expecting with trepidation for this, this cycle just to repeat itself. Actually, although this cycle will have the elements of what I've just shown on the screen, there's an extra element in this cycle that isn't in the others. And that's quite interesting. So whenever there's any pattern that repeats and repeats and repeats itself, but then something different happens, that's always worth looking out for. So notice what happens when the people cry out to the Lord in verse 7. Normally he sends them a judge, someone to save them, but that's not what happens. He sends them a prophet. Before they get saved, they get a sermon. Before God's people can appreciate uh, the rescue that's coming, they need to know why they need rescued. So the prophet comes, and he comes to help them understand why things are going the way they are. He wants them to, to appreciate their idolatry and to see where their sins led them. So, so that's the purpose of this very short sermon, to move people to repentance. What, what, we, what we need to probably appreciate is the people have repented four times before, and yet we're back to the same place again. So there's something about the way in which we're repenting that it's, it's superficial. It's skin deep. It doesn't transform deeply. hasn't been heartfelt. So God, through this prophet, reminds the people of two things. Um, he te- reminds them of what God's done and what they have, they have done. What's God done? I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. That's a good thing to remind people when they're under oppressors, when they're hiding away in caves from Midianites. Pretty relevant. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I'm the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live. So that's God telling us what he's done. What about these people? What have they done? It's much shorter, isn't it? God goes on to say, but you have not listened to me. So God sends this prophet to convict the people of sin before they're judged, before a judge comes to rescue them from oppression. It's quite interesting. We could probably do without the prophet, couldn't we? We cry out to the Lord when our lives aren't going well, hoping that he'll fix things, that he'll rescue us from the difficult situation. We'd be happy enough if our sin wasn't held up before us and we didn't need to repent. You see, there's a difference between regret and repentance. Regret is when we're sorry about difficult things that are happening to us. If we sin and could get away with it, we would. If we sin and things don't go well, we might be full of regret. But we still haven't repented. There's no sorrow in our lives over the sin itself, the thing that grieves God, the thing that undermines our relationship with him. 
the truth is, if we're only experiencing regret, and I, whenever I began to see this distinction, I thought, goodness, how often do I, I actually repent? There are lots of times in my life when I wish things were going better for me. When I say, Lord, sort this out. But, but have I looked beyond to see, well, Lord, where am I disobedient? Where am I failing? If I'm experiencing only regret, then as soon as the hard times pass, I just go back to where I was before. Nothing changes. The thing that I'm regretting is behind me. I just go back to my behavior. The, the sin that's in my life remains, remains just deeply there, hidden away. So regret, in the end, is, is all just about me, how I'm suffering, about how my life is ruined, about my heart breaking. But repentance is all about God, how he's been grieved, how his nature as my creator and my redeemer is being trampled on, and how his repeated saving actions are being trivialized in my life. Listening to God's word and repenting. What can we learn very quickly from this surprising sermon that interrupts this fifth cycle? Let me, let me suggest two things. We can recommit ourselves to hearing God's word. The people cried out to the Lord for help in verse 6, and he chose to help them by sending them a sermon. God thought this was the best and the most important way to help them. God will always want his people to pay attention to his word. He'll always want to share more with us of who he is. He's a revealing God. And to share more with us about who we are so that we know how we stand in relation to him. This is where our idolatry and our sins are exposed. If I don't want to know about my idolatry, I shouldn't read God's word. Seriously, don't, don't read the Bible if you won't really want to be told the truth about who you are. But if you do, then, then read God's word. This is where God exposes our idolatry. This is where he offers his grace. This is the place where we can be made new. We have to keep coming back to God's word. Second, we need to discern for ourselves the difference between what, what Tim Keller calls the normal lapses on the road to Christian maturity. So it is normal to fail and to fall as a Christian. Of course it is. Any one of us who's been walking any length of time knows that. But can we distinguish between that and the getting stuck the period in our lives for months and years when we make no progress. If I'm increasingly falling into the same spiritual pit, if my falls aren't decreasing in regularity or intensity, it's likely that there's no repentance in my life. Any sorrow that I feel about my sins is probably just that regret that we were talking about. What I've been unwilling to do is to look at my life to identify the idolatry and the disobedience that's there. I've allowed the sin still to be attractive to me. I'm not get repulsed by it. 
I need to learn to see this crucial difference and I need to repent. Our second reading is uh, still in chapter 6. It's going to be two sections. We're actually going to leave out the middle section of the chapter. I'm going to read from verse 11 to 24, and I'm going to skip to 33 and read to 40. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abazarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, If now I have found favour in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat into a basket and it's brought in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to hid to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. With the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day, it stands in Ophra of the Abirzites. And from 33, Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abirzites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And this is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. We said at the outset that this question of whether God's with Gideon or not 
towers over this whole chapter. Uh, So I want to notice that quickly with you in the text. The thread begins in verse 12. Angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. He's hiding away from the Midianites in a wine press. And the angel says to him, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon's not convinced. So he says, pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord really is with us, why has all this happened to us? Gideon looks at what's happening, the plight that they're experiencing under the Midianites, and he interprets that not as the presence of God, but as as God's absence. God can't be with us. Later on in verse 13, he says, the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. So Gideon isn't at all sure that God is with him. This chapter is mostly about Gideon seeking reassurances that God will be with him. So verse 17, he asks for a sign that this messenger really is from God. The following verses down to verse 24 tell of this angel who calls down fire from heaven, consumes an offering, and in verse 22, we see Gideon finally coming round. He's been persuaded of God's presence with him. Then Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord. He exclaimed, alas, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. This question, is the Lord with me? It's not the only question, actually. There's a second related question. Will I be able? Is the Lord with me? And will I be able? That's on Gideon's mind. Will I be able to do what God has called me to do to free his people from Midianite oppression? His uncertainty, again, goes right back to verse 12. The angel addressed him as a mighty warrior. He doesn't feel like one. If you read the commentaries, they're not sure whether the angel's taken the hand out of him or not. You know, he's hiding away there. Um, making sure that the enemies can't see him. And then the angel comes and calls him a mighty warrior. I'm sure that irony wasn't lost on you. He's wondering, will I be able? And Gideon asks in verse 15, pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan's the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my family. So he's got a point, hasn't he? He's the weakest member of a family from the weakest clan of an insignificant tribe. Like, what do you know about the tribe of Manasseh? They're, they're not big players in God's story. I think it's fair to say that Gideon himself is not a prominent person. He's a very unlikely hero. Before Gideon's going to be able to do anything in God's name, God's going to need to convince him that I can make you able. And that's the point of the fleeces, verses 36 to 40. Have a look at this. I'd always thought, until I was studying this this week, I thought the fleeces were about guidance, like he was trying to work out whether to do A or B. It's not really. The fleeces are more about assurance, reassurance. That's all. So look at what he says, verse 36. If you'll save Israel by my hand as you've promised, look, I'll I'll place the wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew in the fleece and the ground's dry, then I'll know 
that you will save Israel by my hand. He's not really trying to make a choice. He just wants to know God's presence, that God's going to do the work through him. Lord, show me. Give me a sign that you can use even me to do this job that you've put before me. Two big questions. Are you with me? Am I able? Some of you will have heard me tell this uh, story before. Others, it'll be new to you. This is the time in my life when I most identified with these questions. It was the spring of 2003. I was serving as an assistant minister at Highkirk in Ballymena, and I knew it was time for me to leave and go to another church. And it was around about that time that I first heard of Kirkpatrick Memorial, a church in East Belfast. I was approached by the convener to to consider maybe coming here. And over time, as I got to know a bit more about it and came to visit, I felt um, called to to apply uh, and to pursue that, to test that. So for weeks on end, my mind was filled with these two questions. Are you with me? Am I able? Are you with me? Lord, is is this stuff of my own imagining? Are you really in this? Don't let me run away with my own imaginings. Am I able? Can you do something? I know that that church is close to closing. I know what happens mostly to city churches when they reach that point. So, are you with me? Am I able? This is the part of the story some of you will have heard me tell before. I was right in the, the middle of this. I can't remember the exact um, day in the process it was, somewhere near to being interviewed or after being interviewed. I was reading my, my daily readings in my, the wee cottage in Cullybacky that I was living in. Read Psalm 127. Had a really nice time. Sometimes I can read a Bible reading and... You know, I finish reading at, at half eight in the morning and by 20 to nine it's gone and it stays gone. Sometimes that happens. Not that day. It was in my mind, Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers work in vain. And that. So I went down to Highkirk Church and I opened my mail there and one of the elders here had sent me a copy of the church's annual report and I flicked it open and there was... Um, the, the Kirk Session Report, I think, was the first item. And it was written with a Bible verse heading it. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers work in vain. Okay. There it is. I was like, flip, that's... Whenever you're praying for guidance about a particular church and they send you their thing and it... Okay, Lord, that's, that's, that's good. Then I went home the same day back to the the cottage later that afternoon, opened my mail. I got a card from a hospital chaplain. Hospital chaplains in the past used to send you cards to tell you who was in hospital. Uh, Nowadays, they'd send you an email. I think I received one card during my whole year at Highkirk sent to the cottage. Most of the stuff was coming to the church uh, because there were other pastoral staff working there. So one card all year. 
I flick it over, over to see who it is that's in Beaver Park Hospital. It's a guy I'd never heard of, and most of the people in the church had never heard of him because he was a very loosely associated member. But his name was Mr. Kirkpatrick. So, without laying out any fleeces on any grass and telling the Lord what I wanted him to do, in the space of a few hours that day, he moved me from, are you with me? Yes, I think you are. Am I able? Well, if you say so, I'll do it. So I didn't think anymore about the process. I said, if they'll, if they'll have me, I'll come. Folks, we need to know, each one of us, that he's with us and that we're able for the work he's given us to do. This chapter is all about Gideon struggling with the Lord. Maybe we need to do that. If, if I'm drifting today without a sense of God's presence, uh, maybe, need to, maybe we need to have a, a chat with him about that or without a sense of assurance that he can use me where I am. I need to talk to him about that. Engage him. <clears throat> it wasn't too bad, actually, was it? I like that. Um, our third reading, last one, still chapter 6. I'm going to go from verse 25 to 32, the middle of what I just read before. It goes like this. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it, cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The men of the town demanded of Joash, Bring out your son. He must die because he broke down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So that day they called Gideon Jerob Baal, saying, Let Baal contend with him. Because he broke down Baal's altar. This is God. Thanks, Richie, for reading um, all those passages for me this evening. So, in this chapter, God's been reassuring uh, Gideon that he is with him and that he will be able to defeat the Midianites. There's one assignment that God gives to Gideon before he uses him against the Midianites. Uh, we'll come to that in chapter 7, but that assignment is the one we've just read about here in chapter 6. Before God wants 
to use Gideon to get rid of the enemy out there. He says, Gideon, get rid of the enemy in here. Verse 25, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. Okay, this is interesting. What's Joash doing with a Baal altar and an Asherah pole in his house or in his back garden or wherever it is? Has Gideon been brought up in an idol-worshipping family? Well, not exactly, or, or at least not exclusively. Let me show you how we know that. Flick back to verse 13 or notice it there. Gideon's arguing with the angel about whether God really is with them or not. And Gideon says, he couldn't be. Where are all the wonders that our fathers told us about when they said to us, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? Gideon's fathers have told him about the Lord, the Lord who brought them up out of Egypt. So his dad and his granddad, his ancestors, have been telling the story of God's salvation. That's the story of, of Gideon's family. They've told him about all the great things God's done rescuing his people from Egypt. But now God's asking Gideon to tear down his dad's Baal altar and Asherah pole doesn't quite seem to stack up. Is it Baal, the god of the Canaanites, or is it Yahweh, the god of Israel, that this family is worshipping? They're worshipping both. Joash has taught his family about God's salvation, and at the same time, he's led them to worship idols. He hasn't abandoned the god of Israel to worship idols. No, no. He's combined the worship of God with the worship of idols. If you asked Joash, Joash, who do you follow? Who do you believe? He'd tell you, I think, that he worshipped Yahweh, the God of Israel, because he's an Israelite who looks back to the, the exodus and the rescue from the promised land. But if you watched his everyday life, you might surmise that he worshipped other gods, the agricultural gods if he's a farmer, or the commerce gods if he was into business, or the sex and beauty idols, and so on. I came across this extended quotation from Michael Wilcox in his Judge's Commentary, and I thought would benefit from hearing it this evening. He's talking about this passage. He says, The gods haven't changed, for human nature hasn't changed. And these are the gods that humanity regularly recreates for itself. What do human beings want? If they're modest, they want security and comfort and reasonable enjoyment. If they're ambitious, they want power, wealth, and unbridled self-indulgence. In every age, there are focuses, forces at work which promise to meet our desires whether political programs, economic theories, career options, philosophies, lifestyle options, or entertainment programs, they all have one feature in common. They promise that they can make our lives better than we can make them ourselves. 
at the same time, they appear amenable to our manipulating. So we can get what we want without losing our independence. Here is the enemy among us. We say that we worship the Lord, but the world has crept in and controls our heart. So before God can use Gideon and his people to throw off the Midianites, the enemy out there, they need to deal with the enemy in here, the false Canaanite gods they've welcomed in. Keller says that this is always the main way we get renewal in our lives. God will not help us out of our obvious visible problems, our money problems, our relationship problems, until we see the idols that we're worshiping right beside the Lord. They have to be removed first. We have got to knock down the idols. I was writing this sermon and I thought, what am I going to say about that? So I chatted to Claire. said, what are our idols in our family? Is it wealth? I said, we said together, we didn't think it probably was. Whatever way we're wired, we're not too fussed, whether we have much or little. Materialism, not so much. Not too worried about what kind of stuff we have or don't have. Is it status? I live quite a public life in many ways but I enjoy nothing more than getting out of the public eye. I'm not sure there's a huge problem there. We came resting on some areas that, that we need to be careful about. They aren't necessarily idols, but they could be. Our children and their well-being. So at a time like this, when we have a second kid going through the AQE, we're given a lot of time and energy as a family to try and to help Sophie, in this case, do as well as she can in that test. That's a good thing. That's, that's the right thing to do. Does that mean we're making an idol out of exam success? We hope not. We have prayed all along for years before because we know about this. We've asked the Lord to keep our hearts right and to make it our greatest desire to see them be the young men and women that he's made them to be, that they find their identity only in him, not on any achievement, that they would learn to trust him from the earliest years for everything in their lives. It's easy to say that in advance. It's a little bit trickier when the pressure's on and you're living it. The wonderful thing that we have found these last few weeks, right in the thick of it all, is that because we have prayed that way all along, the Lord's been faithful. He's guarded our hearts. He's kept us. We're doing okay. 
as a family, we're passing the AQE. I don't know what grade we're going to get. We talked and we thought of another idle, potential idle. Uh, we recently bought a property. Um, a lot of ministers don't, well, most ministers in a Presbyterian setting don't own their own house. So they would oftentimes buy a property to make sure that um, when, when they retire or whatever, there's, there's a property or something that they've invested in. So we, we bought a property just in September there. It is the most beautiful place. We really love it. It's down in the mornings. Uh, Claire and I, as you maybe know, love outdoorsy stuff, love, love the mornings. And that could become an idol. You know that, um, that dream that you have, whatever it is, whatever your version of that is, the thing that you think can bring you happiness, bring you joy, it'll be different for each one of us. We could allow ourselves to become preoccupied with this, the, this house, the state that it's in. We could divert a whole lot of time and energy and money into creating some kind of perfect place. It could become something for us. Or we could see it as a gift from God. We could be thankful to him for the beauty of that place the good that it does us to be there. We could be plotting all the while for how we could use it to bless other people. As I've reflected on all of this, I've come to the conclusion that many things could become idols, but nothing need be an idol. Many things in our lives some of them might look entirely harmless, but they could be doing your soul endless damage. But nothing must. God could bless you with all the wealth in the world, and it would do your soul no harm at all if you were in the right relationship with him. So there we are, folks. No easy answers about idols. Let's tear them down, though, will we? Let's ask the Lord to show us what they are and tear them down. Maybe you need to do that same exercise. That exercise isn't finished for us. That was a momentary conversation. But that needs to be a posture of our hearts for the rest of our lives. Lord, is there something creeping in here? Is there an idol? Help us tear it down. Folks, we're finished here for this evening, and as we've looked at this first chapter of the Gideon cycle, we've seen him struggle with this question. Is the Lord with me? Am I able? Kind of question that we're all prone to be asking. At first, when he'd met with God, Gideon was pretty sure that God wasn't with him. Do you remember that? Verse 13, the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon believes that the Lord has abandoned him and his people, Israel. As if the Lord has done no such thing. He may have to bring punishment on them. He may allow others to oppress them. But God doesn't abandon his people. God 
only ever truly abandoned one person. Jesus Christ. As he hangs on the cross, Jesus turns his head towards heaven and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And heaven gives no reply, but if the Father were to give an explanation, it would go something like this. Jesus, my lovely, perfect son, I've abandoned you because you're carrying the sins of the world. I've abandoned you in the way I should have abandoned them. But I've abandoned you because I'm not going to abandon them. And because I don't ever want to abandon them. I've abandoned you because I want to be able to promise them I will never leave you till the end of the age. Is God with me? You better believe it. Can I do it? Yes. Whatever he wants or needs me to do, I can do. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you, all of you, with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.